science. Here uh, I've got um, all my uh, uh, normal crew here with me: uh, Andrew Glester, Jamie Thackra, uh, Josh Warren. Jamie, you're you're usually with us um, one week in the in the month, but tragically and sadly, this is your last time with us for about three months. Yes, it is. Yes, thank you for having me back, and hopefully you'll have me back after I return from a three-month placement in London, which should be very exciting. I'm going to be... Yeah, I was going to, yes, what are you, what are you going to be doing? Um, I'm going to be working with the International Scientific Policy Team at the Academy of Medical Sciences, um, doing a three-month internship, um, and they will be working on current issues facing international scientific policy. Um, what, what sort of thing? I won't use the B word this <laughs> early in the programme, <laughs> but um, it's very likely that that's the kind of thing we'll be working on. Mm. I'm with you. What happens if the B word actually happens? Yes. I honestly have no idea. I was told that I'll be told more information on my first day, which I'm looking forward to. So it could be very, very busy and very, very exciting from the start all the way through to the 22nd of May, it seems. <laughs> Indeed. See, exciting isn't the word I use for these things. But <laughs> I, have other, I have other words for it, but, but there we are. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, yeah. I've started a new job today. Which is ah, kind of exciting. Yes, uh, indeed. And did you get through, you know, you got through... How, now, just a minute. Mm. I'm going to I have to check uh, over this. It's only nine minutes, ten minutes past three yes. in the afternoon. Yeah. I see where and you And you started a new job today. Yes. What kind of a job is this? Oh, it's a lecturer in science communication at UWE. Uh, and uh, it's, it's only three days a week. So I thought I'd do a morning and a bit this oh, morning right. and okay. come in and see you guys talk, and talk to everyone on the radio land. Oh, well, that and, sounds uh, good. And also they hadn't sorted out my login, so I couldn't do any work this afternoon. Anyway, oh, so. That's tragic. Yeah, I know. But, but good news for you and all the radio uh, listeners. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely, and and of course your um, your lovely wife Jenny was um, taking. So uh, sorry, set the context. Last week mm-hmm. we were talking about the Bristol Jazz and Blues Festival, mm-hmm. and she took part in that this this weekend. Yeah, in fact. I'd, I'd, I've been spending the weekend um, uh, enjoying the Jazz and Blues Festival here in Bristol, and uh, what a wonderful thing that is! Uh, taking in some of the the free music stands uh, with my daughter Lima. we were enjoying those and uh, and then Jenny my wife was performing with uh, China Moses on Saturday night at uh, St George's Hall and then Pee Wee Ellis last night oh. and I, I know that we had someone in the studio who was in the audience Yes I went to see Pee Wee Ellis yesterday and Jenny of course <laughs> which who I realised was in it after <laughs> I'd seen the show yeah. um, but yes it was absolutely fantastic it was really really amazing to watch um, he played you know with a full orchestra and he said it was a dream come true of his to play with a strings um Mm. group so he was really really excited himself so i think it was nice for everybody all around Mm. and it was amazing i mean he's he's a big name in the jazz world but if people don't know who he is he was a saxophonist in the james brown band i believe and did some musical arrangements for van morrison back in the day as well so wow i have to say i absolutely love the names that jazz musicians give themselves you know 
I'm going to yeah. be called sort of like um, Marble Malk or something. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Because I, I just feel, you know, having a proper ordinary name is, is, uh, yeah, just, just doesn't work, does it? You could be called Malcolm Love. <laughs> yes, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, prefer, I prefer Marble Malk. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Josh, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I feel as though I've been... Uh, perpetually essay writing this entire week this week um i'm afraid it hasn't been a very interesting week for me although i've just discovered uh thanks to jamie that i can uh have some software to do all my referencing for me ah, that i've been wonderful. doing manually for years and yeah. <laughs> so, so i need to change that so that's really good this is where you say you get all the things from in your in your essay so the, re- the <laughs> <Yeah>. referencing <laughs> oh very good indeed okay well um we uh, we claim anyway to do uh, to do whatever we can to look at science in the news and uh, science behind the news and um there's a there's an interesting story going around. We, we often say um, we are made of stardust. This is, this is it's not just the title of a song. Uh, but the fact that, um, uh, and Andrew, you know uh, a lot more about this than probably uh, the, uh, the rest of us here, um, is that we need really to have material that comes from uh, massive intergalactic uh, explosions, massive explosions, other parts of the galaxy. Yeah. Um, to, in order for us to exist at all, because we've got elements in our bodies Quite. that come from these great big uh, stellar e- explosions. Yeah. Um, th- there's, a, there's a story that um, the Earth itself may be... I know this is a slightly different thing, yeah. uh, but that the Earth may be partly made of rocks that have come from somewhere else mm. in, our, in, our, in our own galaxy. So the, 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 the interesting theme there is that uh, we think we're, it's all discrete. Here we are, you know, we just, we just evolved in our part of the galaxy, whereas, in fact, clearly the universe itself has been extremely dynamic and um, our galaxy is throwing stuff at us all the time. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's a really lovely thought, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. I, I was, uh, just to go back to what you were saying then about these, these heavy... Well, these exotic materials like heavy metals and parts of us that need to come from other stars, that's because the, uh, the, the processes that are required to form them are only possible in the centre of really massive stars, really huge explosions, um, that which, which would send out that stuff into space. But in the first place, these really massive stars, the, the pressure and um, heat at the centre of those stars is such that they can build the materials that we see around us in, in our planet. And uh, it, it, it couldn't be here on our planet unless it had been cooked up in the centre of massive stars. I mean, something like titanium, for example, we yeah. discovered recently that that was uh, that's probably the vast majority of the titanium uh, that we know of on Earth is uh, cooked up in the centre of um, two colliding neutron stars. So it's a result of colliding neutron stars wow. far out in space that sent that yeah. material to Earth. And as I understand it, anything bigger than iron, and sorry, a, a molecule, a, a, an atom, any atoms bigger than iron, mm. which is not that big, yeah. Have to have come from somewhere else. We, yeah. our sun, could not possibly have made made those elements. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, that's okay. So, but this story is something else. I think this is something to do with our our old friend. Uh, 
new old friend, yeah. uh, Uamuamua. Have yes. I got that right? Well, uh, yeah, Please, Oumuamua. could you tell me what that is? Because I okay. have no idea. Ah, yes. Okay. So, so uh, this is the cigar-shaped asteroid. You will remember this story. This is a cigar-shaped asteroid that came flying through our solar system. It looks like absolutely nothing else. And because of its trajectory, we realised that it couldn't actually have come from the outer reaches of our solar system like uh, other, some other asteroids have come from. Uh, and, and so it's, it's come from deep, well, you know, for want of a better phrase, deep space. And there was a whole wow. load of speculation about maybe it's a spaceship or something like that. But anyway... There's it uh, some really very odd things about it. And like, what, one of the really odd things about it is that when it went past the sun and then started going away from the sun and out of our solar system, it sped up, right? And if you're going away from the sun, yeah, there's a little bit of uh, the slingshot effect where you use the sun's gravity to, to fire you off. But after a while, that, that starts to slow down because the sun's gravity is pulling you back. But this thing started to accelerate away, which is uh, an odd, an odd thing. And um, it, it doesn't... I mean, obviously, the first thought in anybody who's ever watched any science fiction or read any science fiction is, right, well, it's got a rocket on it and it's aliens. And even uh, Professor um, Avi Loeb from um, Harvard University proposed that. As a, well, not necessarily that, actually. He proposed a big solar sail, so a big sort of um, solar-panelled... So, solar-panel sail, right, if you see what I mean, um, which would uh, harness the power of the sun in order to, to send this thing off into space. Um, he didn't say that it was that, he just said it's possible that it could be that. And then um, oh, lots of uh, the media and people um, ran with that, of course. Exciting. Harvard astronomer says it's, uh, it's aliens. And, um, <laughs> yes. A, he didn't, and B, he always says that. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, there, what, there's actually, just as an aside before we get to this, I've been having a few conversations on Twitter with people because of Oumuamua, because I wrote an article about Oumuamua for Physics World magazine. And uh, it's been put out into the world, obviously, this, this, this article. And uh, the, the scientific community does not know what Oumuamua is. It doesn't behave in the way that you would expect uh, a comet or an asteroid to behave if it's from our solar system. But it isn't from our solar system. So it does behave in a way that an asteroid or a comet might behave if it's from another solar system. It doesn't really behave in the way you would expect an alien spacecraft to behave, right? Mm. OK. But um, I, I, th there are people who have been tweeting at me <laughs> as a result of writing this article who believe that they know what Oumuamua is because they've thought about it a lot. And guess what they all think it is? Uh, alien spaceship. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Of course. Anyway, the fact is, it probably isn't. And um, one a study that's been done by uh, two, uh, well, led by two scientists from the University of Belfast, that's Suzanne Pfalzner, and I don't know how to say that. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and Michelle Bannister uh, have been looking at uh, modelling how these sorts of uh, interstellar rocks or whatever they might be might end up in our solar system. And the interesting thing that they've discovered is that there could well be millions of them 
Mm. And the reason that we haven't found any before is because they move so quickly, they're so small, relatively mm. yeah. speaking, and they're so dark in material that they don't re- reflect very much light back from the sun, so we wouldn't see them. But their, their estimations from looking at how this, these things might be formed in stellar explosions and things suggests that any large star might have as many as 10 million surrounding them. If that is the case, then we're going to be able to find more of them now we know kind of but, what to look for. But how strange we haven't seen anything like this yeah, before. But if, if there are millions of them, you'd, you'd yeah. expect we'd have, we'd have seen them, yeah. wouldn't you? Well, the thing with our Moa is that the reason that we haven't seen anything like it before is just purely because it moves so quickly yeah. that it, all telescopes up until very recently it would have moved so quickly across the field of view yeah. uh, that we wouldn't have, have seen it and the, the, oh, it right. was discovered by the Pan Stars Telescope I think in, in uh, Hawaii yeah and uh, that Which is why it has a Hawaiian name. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it means scout from another world. I think. Right. She's okay. kind of yeah, lovely, yeah. isn't it? And um, and also misleading. And and so Panstar scans the whole sky, and so um, it, they saw, one of the astronomers there saw this 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 thing moving, and now we've found one. I I suspect you know how these things work. I suspect there's thousands of them in the data, and then there's millions of them that have moved too quickly, are too dark, too yeah. small for us to have seen. Mm. And, uh, yeah, if there are millions of them, that's, 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 int- that's amazing and interesting. And we'll find more of them and then we'll be able to actually work out what they are and where they've come from. Mm. But the other thing is that they're, that they're saying is it, when, planet, when planets are formed, they're formed by, we, uh, as we understand it, b- bits of rock and dust that are in, or bits of dust, really, that are in space... Bringing, coming together as uh, in a swirling dust around a star, right? A, st- sterling, a swirling cloud around a star. There's all these tiny bits of dust, and they start to gather together, and the gravity starts to grow as they do gather together, and eventually one of those bits gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and <laughs> over a case of you know over a billion years or so, uh, it becomes a planet. Well, if you've got these relatively big bits of rock being flung out from stars into other solar systems, into these very young solar systems, then you can see that that might play a part in giving a kickstart to planets. There's, yeah. no, there's no way we'll be able to tell that because no. you can't go into the centre of Earth and find out if there is yeah. an Oumuamua-type thing in there. But it's a lovely thought to think about. Yeah, well, you never That's know amazing. what kind of detection we might invent. So how far is this thing got? So is it still moving really fast? Yeah, it's, it's heading out of the solar system. And I think in 2022 it will overtake Voyager 2, which is right on the edge of our... Solar system. Voyager Two has been going for a very yeah, long time. Exactly. It's oh, wow. a bit yeah. quicker than Voyager. Yeah. There is there is a, a proposal to try and catch up with it and send a harpoon into it, which you wouldn't do if it was an alien spacecraft. Yeah. Um, uh, to try and work out what it is, it's called rather wonderfully Project Lyra, um, because oh. the uh, Oumuamua originally they thought had come from the part of the sky that the Lyra constellation is in. Um, the trouble is, it'd have to be incredibly fast. Um, yeah. Space I mean, is that, is that even feasible? It is. At, cer- at a certain point, it would have to launch, I think, this year or next year. Right. And um, it has to go out to, to Jupiter and do that slingshot, as Tom right. was talking about. Yeah. It, it uses the gravity of Jupiter to speed up. And then it's got to do a flyby 
um, there's a joke coming up, a flyby of the sun, but unfortunately it has to go so close to the sun that it's a fryby. Yes? Um, <laughs> yeah, Matt told you it was coming. Because <laughs> it would just oh, burn out instruments. But they <laughs> told us it was coming, we still <laughs> weren't ready. <laughs> it wasn't worth it, if anything, Andrew. Uh, well, I know, but I, it was in my head, so it had to come out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, I, it, if the, 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 I spoke to the, the chap behind uh, Project Lyra, and he th- he thinks it's possible, um, but it would be expensive, and it needs an awful lot of um, support to get the money together to do that. Yeah, and it's, I don't think it's going to happen. But we could find out, as I say, because if this is right, and there are, in fact, millions of them, or ten million of them in our solar system, then we will before long find some more and absolutely fabulous to have new objects to oh yeah you know, to, to talk, you know new kinds of objects yeah I think people always are going to speculate aren't they the most exotic yeah. kind of uh, of course yeah you want the you want the fairy tale yeah 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 so <laughs> that's partly what makes human beings so inquisitive is that we uh, uh, we've got oh, yeah. fantastic imagination. I they mean, work for us, and sometimes they obscure what's really going on. Uh, I don't. Mean, I don't have a problem with people thinking it might be aliens. Yeah, but yeah. saying that it is aliens ah, because you thought yes, about yes, it yes, is yes. just ridiculous. Well, this is an interesting. I mean, we, 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 we've got to move on. This is an interesting point, isn't it? That uh, it's not uh, that. No, I, I, I remember Richard Feynman, the great, great physicist, very popular sort of phys- physicist. Uh, saying things like, um, I am not saying that aliens don't exist. Uh, I'm not saying that they haven't visited Earth. I'm just saying there is no evidence that they have that we have yet come across. Mm. And that's a completely different uh, different thing from saying, oh, no, the, you're foolish, this isn't true, this yeah. isn't happening. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Completely. And uh, you are listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2 or bcfmradio.com uh, where you can uh, stream uh, uh, the show uh, and all kinds of other shows that uh, the wondrous BCFM uh, puts out every week. Uh, just go to bcfmradio.com, uh, look at shows, and you can see Love and Science and all kinds of things. So um, we're, uh, we've been looking at uh, some stories about... Well, we've been looking at one particular story. We're going to do a few more in a bit. What we come to now, though, is a, an interview uh, with Claire Kanya. Uh, Claire is... Um, uh, a researcher. She's uh, doing a, a doctorate in, um, well, we could generally call it food science because she's part of uh, global uh, food security uh, research, part of a, uh, many people who, who work on that subject, and we'll talk about that uh, shortly. Um, Claire entered a, a competition because global food security uh, wanted to uh, encourage uh, some of their scientists to uh, communicate better what they do. Uh, Claire did a, a a, a great job, and uh, she actually won from all the uh, entrants uh, who applied. And uh, uh, well, I'll let this interview uh, speak for itself. But I began by uh, asking her whether she had uh, enjoyed the competition and listening uh, to what her colleagues had been saying. It was really exciting to hear how everyone's research focus discussing the concept of food security. There were people ranging from psychologists to studying bees to what I was doing with plant disease, but how we all impacted food security in some way um, and how we could use our knowledge to 
to kind of influence the public and how we can get our points across better. So it was really interesting. What I think is novel in the way we see things is the smaller scale, the how each minute thing that happens in the field, something from when a bee chooses to pollinate a plant to how we pick our cereal, how all these influence food security on a global level, rather than just the big changes of it's getting very warm and we're running out of water. So I think we have the, we're looking at it from a small point of view, but it makes the global impact. Now, I know that you work on plant diseases, but you're particularly interested in the disease themselves. Um, yes. In the talk that you gave, and I, I was privileged to see a kind of run-through rehearsal talk, you talked about a... I'm not quite sure what it is, actually, whether it's a bacterium... It's called, a fungi. Oh, it's, it's a, a fungi yes. called yes. Fusarium. Yeah, so right. the fungi is called Fusarium graminearum, specifically. Just like animals, uh, fungi have different species. So Fusarium is kind of the general name, which I refer it to, but specifically it was that one species that infects mainly cereal crops so things like wheat and barley and uh, so what so what does it do so fusarium is an unusual fungi because instead of just invading a plant and trying to kill it quickly it wants to keep it alive for a small amount of time so it can get as much nutrients from the plant it can whilst the plant is uh, producing food and growing so what fusarium does is it invades the plant internally so spores land on the, on the wheat normally. In the UK, it's a big problem on wheat. And it will land on wheat and penetrate the plant tissue and grow inside it. But it does this whilst hiding. So it doesn't want the plant to know it's there. So the plant doesn't try and defend itself. So while living inside this plant, it's taking all the nutrients it can. But it's also fundamentally the issue is that it's producing a toxin. Um, and this toxin is called vomitoxin, and that's the main problem with fusarium. There's, there's, a, have... clue, there's a clue to what it might do to us. Exactly. Vomitoxin is called that because if humans and animals keenly um, consume any wheat with this toxin, you're going to get very sick. So the problem is that any wheat infected, not only can you not use it to feed humans, you can't use it to feed animals either, which tends to be the default if you've got grains that aren't quite up to human grade. Yeah. So how, how wide a, um, widespread a problem is this fusarium? Well, globally, um, it's actually considered the largest threat to wheat production. Um, it's a very big problem in America, and it causes billions of dollars of damage over there. And it's starting to spread. So we're trying to keep an eye on it in Europe, but we are starting to see a lot more of it. And um, uh, no, no doubt there are all kinds of kind of quarantine regulations and things that come into force. But your job, I take it, is to study this fungus and stop it having the effect that it does. So how do you go about that? Well, I, I'm very lucky. I get to have a combination of what we call wet and dry research. So I spend half my time in the lab where I get to infect wheat and study everything on a kind of wet biology level, getting my hands dirty. But I spend the other half of the time actually just using um, a technique called bioinformatics, which is looking at the genes, looking at proteins on a um, genetic level and, and using a combination of all the data we have about this fungus and about its genome and try and find um, different um, genes that it has that might mean that it's very good at infecting wheat. The master plan is to find these small proteins that Fusarium makes. So whilst it's hiding inside the wheat, 
it needs to produce these small proteins to make sure that wheat doesn't start um, or trigger an immune response. And it's these proteins that we think are the key to fusarium being successful. So if, if we can identify what these proteins are, and we can either breed a wheat plant that can uh, resist them, or if we can find a, a chemical treatment that will stop these proteins specifically, uh, we can actually halt fusarium infection in its tracks. Presumably, there are hundreds of people like you working on different projects around the world. Absolutely. I mean, in my department alone, in Rothenstead, we're called the plant pathogen department. And the people who sit next to me are working on a completely different fungus. Someone across the side is working on bacteria. And not just wheat, there's different crops as well. So um, we are trying to work partially together, but focus all our research into just trying to solve one disease at a time. Well, Claire, we wish you every success. Thank you very much for uh, talking to us. And once again, big congratulations for being the winner of the Speak Up for Food Security competition 2019. Thank you very much. Yeah, and indeed we do. That was uh, that was Claire Kanya, and uh, we, we do wish her and her colleagues every success because our health and well-being, all of us, depends on the kinds of things that they do. It's interesting. I met, uh, um, I, like I said, I, I, I went to uh, uh, this event, or at least a run-up to the event, and uh, there are people there working on... Um, climate change and, and trying to figure out the best kinds of crops that that people can grow now in the changed climate where they live uh, there are people working on climate change m much more generally uh, other other people working on how you can uh, educate people differently in the way that you know we plant crops use food and pe people like claire who are uh, looking at um uh maybe how you can deal with uh, threats to crops in, in, in forms of uh, bacteria or viruses or, in her case, uh, fungi. So, uh, yeah, it's a very, very Im Im important topic. And uh, I, I, um, I like to think that uh, we should <laughs> maybe appreciate them uh, a, a little bit more than we do. These people working away uh, in the background on stuff that is really quite vital. So you say to the average person, what do you think scientists do? They say, oh, it's, it's all about inventing stuff <laughs> that we can buy. Uh, but there are people doing stuff that keeps us alive. Yeah, yeah. brilliant stuff. Yeah, remarkable. Um, OK, well, we've got another science story. I mean, we, Of course, there are so many uh, every week, and we just pick out what we like. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the nice things about doing this show. And um, apparently there's um, hopes for a new mission to Venus. Now, I know back in, I think it would have been the late 70s, maybe early 80s, I think late 70s, there was a, the, the Russians sent um, a probe called Venera off to Venus, landed it, on, and, and it very, very little was known about Venus. So we land on its surface, or humans, humanity lands on its surface, and the thing promptly melts. Mm -hmm because the surface of Venus is about 500 degrees centigrade. It's enough to melt lead, so it certainly melted this, um, this probe. And uh, since we've sent probes back, I think we, uh, certainly there was one going around there in the, in the early 80s, uh, and uh, the Venus orbiter. And so, so we've learned a huge amount more about Venus, and it turns out to be an extremely inhospitable planet. Josh, I don't know if you've had a, had a look at this yeah, story well, kick um, us off on this. Well, despite its appearances as incredibly volatile and volcanic and, uh, and all the other stuff, it's... 
um, for for a long time, we thought that Venus was geologically dead. Right. Which, um, well, when you think about uh, planet Earth, um, all of the volcanic activity that happens on planet Earth is as a result of um, geological recycling going on due to plate tectonics and things, and the and the and the flow of of um, of the different layers in the in in the Earth. Um, but scientists had previously thought that Venus didn't have these these this this recycling going on, and so all the all the uh, volcanic activity that we've seen on Venus through some of the studies that we've had before um, uh, couldn't get recycled and can and can happen again, I believe. And so it was it was just uh, going for a phase of, of dying now. This, yeah. this this planet. So it just did one show and that was it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And we're seeing the 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 embers of that. However, um, new. Uh, signs and studies suggest that um, Venus does have some of these recycling capabilities and some of these plate tectonics, and um, this has given rise to suggestions that we might go and have another have another look at it and, ha- and send some more missions to uh, to better understand it. Yeah, yeah. you you very interested in Venus, Andrew? Uh, well, I'm yeah. sure you are because it's, 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 it's a, I mean, it's I, another it's, planet. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, obviously, if we send anything back there, it's still. 500 degrees C, yeah, and it's still what is it? Nine, uh, 90 bars, which is equivalent to the uh, pressure at 900 meters below the surface of the sea. So why though? Because it's not. A, I mean, it's smaller than we are. Yeah. So well, why it's got an incredibly what? dense atmosphere? Right. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I, th- there's there's a, a, a strong school of thought that uh, Earth and Venus may well have been very similar back in many billions of years ago, three or four billions of years ago. And uh, it's, Venus just has this runaway um, climate change, uh, the greenhouse effect is the word that I'm looking for, uh, runaway greenhouse effect due to this uh, incredibly dense atmosphere. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of... It's always used as, a, as an example of, of, of what might happen. It was an incredibly extreme example of what might happen to our planet with, with climate change. Obviously, mm. one of the things that we're doing is putting uh, gases into the atmosphere, which, which make it uh, uh, more dense, which, you know... Yes. It's kind of the same thing, really. Yes. That's yes. frightening, yeah. isn't it? We're yeah. doing our best. We're doing our best. We'll get there in the end. Are we doing our best, though? <laughs> Maybe what we should do is, is get uh, someone like Elon Musk to run trips for oh, yeah. climate change sceptics to Venus. That's not a bad idea. You know, and you spend like yeah. you know a week on the surface, yeah. or maybe a long weekend, yeah. and just go. So, what yeah. do you think? I think. The <laughs> I thought you were proposing to leave them yeah, there dump, for a dump second. Them on the of Venus. <laughs> just go leave them on Venus. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> oh gosh. There's <laughs> uh, certainly. I think we should send politicians first because it's important that they understand this most. Right. Ooh. That's my thinking. Absolutely. Um, but um, yeah, no. Russia's spent sent uh, quite a few probes to to Venus in its time, and. Um, uh, they, they sort of concentrated it when uh, the, on it when the West was concentrating on Mars, and um, it, yeah, it's it's really fascinating that it, it, we might go back there. I always think of um, Titan, you know, is yes. one of uh, Jupiter's moons. Yes, and uh, I want to go there. Yeah, amazing. That's what I really want to see. Absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, but Venus. Similarly, if we can if we can build something that can peer beneath those clouds for long enough to give us a pictures you know visual pictures of what yeah. uh, what is underneath there, then um, 
And that seems like a strange thing to say, visual pictures, but you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Yeah. Like the mental pictures. Uh, <laughs> C.S. Lewis, he is, you know, the writer of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and uh, all, all of those, the Oxford professor, he, uh, he wrote a story uh, called Perilandra, all about Venus, because at the time when he wrote in the 50s, it was just believed it was just an yeah. absolutely charming place and it might be a might be a paradise where as an alternative home for humans. Yeah. So it didn't out. turn out. So there's so. just one other thing on this, which is um, this concept of a toffee planet, which I'd not heard before. No. no. Josh, any thoughts you on chew that? The, I, you chew I, that over? I hadn't <laughs> heard it either, but um, <laughs> is, is it not something to do with the thickness of the crust of the planet and there's various factors that can affect the thickness of your crust Um, this isn't uh, I'm not going anywhere with pizza here by the way but (laughs) but, um, uh, things like the size of the planet uh, we we, we spoke about the the density of the atmosphere um, its proximity to the sun its its, uh, gravitational picture, everything um, goes into the thickness of uh, the crust on a planet and um, I suppose if you if you imagine a, a warm toffee that might have a, uh, a very thin uh, hard mm. crust on the top and then gooey underneath um, that might be an image of what Venus looks like. Mm. It sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Taste, take me there. <laughs> You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM. Indeed you are. Now, um, we've uh, uh, occasionally uh, talked about um, mobile technology, mobile phones and things like that. Um, I caught up with uh, a researcher into this field who's interested in uh, uh, the sort of uh, psychology and uh, physical effects of mobile phones, uh, Dr. Joe Fowler, who did her research at uh, Bristol University. And um, I was um, asking her about some of the... Uh, first First of all, some of the physical f- effects that we uh, know about mobile phones and, of course, uh, what recommendations uh, people uh, make about that. Potentially, there are effects from the radiation on the phone for children, children more than adults, because actually children's skulls are, th- are much thinner than adults. And, and potentially, the radiation effects might affect children a lot more than they would affect an adult brain. So there's various sort of guidelines in different countries about how much a phone should be used and how much it shouldn't. But, for example, in France, children are advised not to use phones at all under six, and advertising of phones is banned. In the in the UK, children are advised only to use mobiles for essential calls and emergencies. And things like keeping a phone under a pillow is, is, is not good, or in a pocket, because studies have been carried out where it potentially can affect fertility um, in men and women. So the government guidelines do actually encourage children and adults to use headphones or a hands-free kit so the phone isn't held near the ear. And also, phone manuals also advise users to hold the phone away from the head to reduce the amount of time spent on calls. You must be asked all the time by friends who have younger children or grandchildren even for advice. Is it a bad idea to buy your child a mobile phone? Is it a bad idea? I mean, say a child as young as five or six... Um, I, I think avoid it as long as possible, really. Why? Because 
there's a lot of other things that children can be doing, like playing outside. My work looked at children from eight years old, and a lot of children preferred to use their phones rather than have face-to-face contact with their friends. I mean, for younger children, they would prefer to maybe have a chat on their phone than actually talk to them. And older children, like 11 to 14, they prefer to text on their phone rather than have face-to-face contact. But um, not to worry, like by 18 to 25, they actually do prefer face-to-face contact. So, so your view is, basically, even, even if this is happening, even if a child is basically saying, no, no, I don't need to see them, I'll text them or I'll phone them or something like that. Um, ah, that shouldn't have finished there, but it did. <laughs> what, a, what a strange thing. Big apologies. But big thanks um, to Joe, Dr. Joe uh, Fowler, for uh, uh, talking to me there. She's uh, finished um, uh, some uh, research on, uh, on mobile phones and just gave us a little taste of uh, uh, some of the things that uh, she's found out. I think that this, it's interesting, isn't it, Jamie, that... Um, uh, mobile phones actually it's, it's, it's sort of a, we need a multidisciplinary approach to this because there's a, there's the psychology of it we know so it affects us socially in so many ways you know, I I I'm amazed at how often you go you go to a restaurant or, or a cafe or something you see people sitting together all of them looking at their mobile phones but not talking to each other um, so there's a whole social discussion to be to be had there. That's probably not necessarily a bad thing. Depends what they're doing with those mobile phones and what happens after. But psych- but we don't actually know what's happening to the brain when we hold a mobile phone up to our heads. Exactly. I mean, it's really hard. Um, for example, you can't take a mobile phone into an MRI scanner because that's a big magnet and the phone will come flying out of your hands and stick to it. So you couldn't do a study of what's happening to the brain while somebody's got a mobile phone up against their ear. Um, yeah. So that wouldn't really work. Um, <laughs> because it wouldn't be up against their ear for long. It would be spectacular. Experiment, though. Yeah, yeah, and you'd probably get completely slaughtered by the radiographer for breaking the machine. And your phone, right? And your phone, yeah. exactly. Well, apparently mobile phones get completely wiped as you bring them near an MRI scanner, so mm. we're not allowed to take them anywhere within the range of the MRI scanner. Um, but uh, that's digressing. Um, if we um, think about how studies on how mobile phones affect the brain might need to be done, this kind of thing might need to be studied over, you know, tens of years, we're talking 50, 60, 70 years maybe, to even know really what the effect, because they do have some microwaves in them as we were discussing earlier during the break but um, we don't know what effect these have, they may be completely innocuous I was saying I met somebody once from Public Health England whose job it was to find out whether or not mobile phones gave you cancer and he was saying you know, we've been researching this for years the answer is we honestly just don't know to do a study like this would take so long and you know, if you tell people, here, here's a thing we'd like to know, is this going to give you cancer? Please, will you put it under your pillow for every day for the next 50 years? They're very unlikely to <laughs> agree to do that. So studying this kind of thing is really, really difficult. So we'll have to see what happens. You know, we might, there, a lot more evidence might come into light as the use of mobile phones increases. Um, 
I think that's the thing, though, isn't it? We don't know. Is that, and that doesn't mean it does cause cancer, and it doesn't yeah. mean that it doesn't. It yeah. means we don't know. Yeah. But I've thought about it for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it's aliens, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was just thinking of another study that I read recently about um, Minitel. Do you know Minitel, the old French system? Before the internet, there was Minitel, which was text phone things. That, that people right. used to have these. Okay. No, I didn't know about yeah. that. Yeah, so it was before the internet, and you could use it for all sorts of things like you know maybe even booking tickets and things guess what people used it for most well actually it could be anything right but what they used it for most was anonymously sending messages text messages to people that they didn't know (laughs) (laughs) like prank mini telling i was thinking it's more like twitter so you make up a fake name and you put yourself on there and then you just start sending messages to random messages We don't change, really, do we? No, we don't. We we really don't. Okay, so uh, we just got time for another quick uh, story. Um, Huge fossil discovery made in China's Hubei province. So, Josh, you had a look at this. Yeah. um, So, yeah, there's there's a riverbed in China. that we have recently found a new set of fossils from. These fossils are estimated to be about 518 million years old, um, and we found something like 20,000 different uh, specimens. Um, And what makes this interesting is um, what it appears to be is that you um, you can see preserved really, really perfectly all of the soft tissues of, of, of the animals. For example, there's there's a picture here of, of, of a, like a, a jellyfish, That's right? That's really extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? I, I would never have thought that was possible. <laughs> well, so, be, yeah, because because usually the only bits that get preserved in fossils are, of course, the bones and, yeah. the, and the hard exoskeletons yeah, yeah. and things that, that, of, of, of the animals. You'd just think a dead jellyfish would just evaporate, yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of um, processes that, goes, that, that go into... Uh, fossil making um, but th- in this particular case it seems as though um, it looks as though there's been a storm or some sort of geological event which has caused all these animals to get buried very very quickly and under very very intense pressures very very quickly and that has uh, enabled the soft tissues to be preserved um, uh, well perfectly really and it's, yeah, it's, it's cool it's cool yeah, it's a marvellous story. They're, they're, they're known as, I was trying to see if I, if I thought that I could pronounce this, it's the King Jiang Biota. So the biota bit is collections of biological stuff. It's King, uh, King Jiang, I think, as you'd say that, collected near the Dan Shui River in Hubei province. Yeah, but, uh, but as I say, it's just an incredibly uh, lucky series of events and series of... Um, factors that went into making this 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 wonderfully perfect uh, fossil record. Yeah, it's cool. Speaking of wonderfully perfect fossils, we've got John Ford. <laughs> oh, well done! Mar- <laughs> marvelous to have him with us again. Hi, John. Hello. Yeah. None taken. Nice. <laughs> nice how you was. Don't forget to stay tuned uh, to the show after the news because John Ford will most definitely be getting Bristol home. So, John, do you think we left much out of the show this you, week? You did, and I'll tell you about that in a minute if we've got time. But on the on the telephone thing, the mobile phone thing, I all and do you ever any of you leave your mobile phone? 
phone by the side of your bed at night? Yeah. Use it as an alarm clock yeah. or whatever? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Even though you've been thinking about this scare. <laughs> I find that... See, I, I never, ever do. It stays in a different room, <laughs> and it stays in my sort of office room where I've got the, the router for my Wi-Fi, which I turn off at night, every night. Oh, right. Who sleeps turn in it there? Hmm? Who sleeps in there? Well, no-one, obviously. <laughs> um, well, I tell you what I have to... I just turn it off because I'm afraid of all this, you know, all this stuff flying through the air, yeah. microwaves and so what So you don't you. use it as an as a, uh, alarm? No. No, no, no. Oh. No, not at all. Okay. So I just oh, well, don't like the thought of the phone by my bed with all this stuff going in my head while I'm asleep. Yeah, well, yeah. Why, why do I want that? Yeah, fair enough. Well, what do we leave out of the show? Well, you, you've, you've left all sorts of things out. Um, this, <laughs> this day in 1954, uh, production of colour television sets started. 1954, can you wow, believe that? Yeah, Colour televisions. Yeah. Which was 29 years to the day from 1925 when the, the first public demonstration of the television system took place uh, in Selfridges in Oxford Street in London by John Logie Baird. There's a name that you would have heard of, the man who invented the television. Absolutely, yeah. 1925. Wow. Good grief. You'll yeah. remember that, wouldn't you? I did, well, yeah. I was only a young man at the time, but I do remember. <laughs> Can I have one of those for Christmas, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a, a couple of other things. We'll, uh, we'll cover those off uh, after four o'clock. Absolutely. Well, look, it's uh, been great to... Uh, well, it's, as I said, stay tuned to uh, uh, the radio because John Ford will be with us um, after the uh, break, uh, after the news. Um, it's been our pleasure to be with you with uh, Love and Science. We'll be here again next week. So from Andrew and Josh and Jamie and me, uh, have yourselves a very good evening and uh, have uh, a great week. Bye now. Science.